This past weekend, news broke of another mass shooting, this time in Buffalo, New York. The shooting took place at a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood. Ten people were killed and three others were injured. The 18-year-old gunman had a racial slur written on the barrel of his gun and live-streamed the shootings. Later, his manifesto was discovered, which was filled with white supremacist conspiracy theories. Just the day before, we had sat down with historian Jamar Tisby to discuss the hysteria over critical race theory and why racial progress always incites backlash. These are not unrelated events, and in the wake of another white supremacist terrorist attack, we believe it is unconscionable to continue to claim that critical race theory is the real danger in our country and our churches. At a time when reports of racially motivated hate crimes are on the rise, we want to ask, why are so many Americans concerned about CRT? And what is our role and responsibility as white Christians in this moment? From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York without losing our devotion. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Hi, this is Ibu Patel. 20 years ago, I founded an organization called Interfaith Youth Corps, dedicated to working with young people from different religious and spiritual backgrounds to build a country that is welcoming to all. This year, we are changing our name to Interfaith America with an expanded mission and vision, but with the same goal of making religion a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of division. You can learn how in my book, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy, and by visiting www.interfaithamerica.org. Looking forward to working alongside you as we build Interfaith America together. I was the gospel reader at church this weekend, and when they sent me the text ahead of time that morning to read, it felt like a punch in the gut. We were reading a famous passage when Jesus tells his disciples they will be known by their love for one another. I just felt so profoundly grieved in that moment by how much we have failed at that, how bad Christians have been at loving one another. We prayed for the victims Mm -hmm. of the shooting in Buffalo as well during the prayers of the people. And it just struck me. I mean, our church is predominantly white and how easy it is for a lot of white Christians to kind of Mm -hmm. read news like this and grieve and mourn inwardly and then feel like they can just go about their business. (laughs) I mean, because, because in a way they can, but what does it mean to grieve when others are grieving you know, the gospel passage was kind of on the nose for the weekend. And I think our pastor probably like mostly rewrote his sermon for after Saturday. But part of what I kept thinking about is just that like, it's a white Christian 
culture that is perpetuating some of these narratives around white supremacy and or pushing back against something like critical race theory Mm -hmm. that is meant to help protect or help us understand the roots of Mm -hmm. this kind of racism. I mean, it's white Christians that are an obstacle here and that is heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would want to nuance that a little bit. I think a lot of white Christians in America consider themselves to be political conservatives. Mm -hmm. And instead of challenging or questioning the ways in which, you know, conservative talk show hosts, for example, espouse ideas that are in direct opposition to Christian ideas about people mm-hmm. <laughs> and about justice and about equity, I would almost say they have either fallen prey mm-hmm. to a lot of those ideas yeah. or they have chosen silence and kind of a tacit acceptance instead of challenge- speaking up and challenging the ways in which conservative ideology fuels racial hatred. And that that the silence is as grievous as kind of actively promoting racist ideology. One of the things in the Buffalo Shooters 180-page hate-filled manifesto, there were references to Christianity. And from what Mm. I know so far, and this is early and I have not read the manifesto, but from what I've heard, those references, they were more about a culture, more about preserving white mm. Christian culture than about his own faith mm-hmm. or beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit connected to what you're talking about is there's the sense of a certain ideology that has sort of adopted Christianity as part of its namesake, as part of its brand. Mm-hmm. And there's a fear of that somehow being erased or somehow being lost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is all part of like a broader white supremacist conspiracy theory or a number of conspiracy theories really that are all interconnected. But a lot of that is under this umbrella of what is called the great replacement theory. This conspiracy theory, the idea that white Christians are being replaced strategically Mm -hmm. replaced immigrants by people of color. Um, It depends on where you are in the world. If you're in Europe, a lot of the hysteria around that is directed toward Syrian immigrants, Muslim immigrants coming into Europe. But here it's, Mm -hmm. it's more about Latin American and South American immigrants. But the core of that is this fear that white people are losing their culture. White people are going to be replaced. Right. I think it's really perceptive of you to note the ways that Christianity, as it's defined as a cultural influence, is wrapped up into that. It's not so much about (laughs) the teachings Mm -hmm. of Jesus or the Mm -hmm. Bible or even the gospel. It's like Christianity as a cultural norm Mm -hmm. and wanting white Christians to retain cultural power Mm -hmm. and how Christianity is almost secondary to the sense of white hegemonic Mm -hmm. power. Yeah. At the very least, this great replacement theory and other ideologies connected to it, I think are at root really motivated by Mm -hmm. fear, a fear of the future, fear of a loss of power, a loss of cultural traditions Mm -hmm. and that fear directly fueling some people to lash out violently, you know, in these worst cases in these mass shootings, Mm -hmm. but also in racist speech and ideas. And these ideas aren't fringe either. They really aren't. In addition to being mainstreamed on 
some conservative television shows. I mean, the idea of the the even the term the replacement theory or replacement has become used hundreds of times on Tucker Carlson on other conservative shows. And this was not a term that was being used all that often outside of like mm. not too long ago of fringe internet 4chan 8chan places, but now you're hearing it in, all over the place. A Times investigation showed that in more than 400 episodes of his show, Tucker Carlson has amplified this idea that the Democrats want to force demographic change through immigration. And this is used to kind of stoke listeners and viewers fears like ideas have consequences. They do. And I don't, I don't know that an 18 year old man is or was listening to Tucker Carlson, but even if he was indoctrinated on 4chan and 8chan, which it sounds like that's where he was spending a lot of time. The point is, is that like that was fringe that was a corner of the dark web that is now being mainstreamed and being validated. And you're starting to hear some of the same phrases, the same concerns, the same accusations against the Democrats, against these people in power, mm -hmm. these elites. And that would just validate it. it. You might hear it in a French place and then you would hear it in a mainstream place. And it's like, okay, this is like, this isn't just a weird thing to think. Like there's proof of mm -hmm. this. There's evidence of this. Um, and one of the scary things, too, is that the Tree of Life Pittsburgh synagogue shooting mm -hmm. was also directly came out of this great replacement theory idea um, because one of the super common themes of this is that it's not just Democrats planning this. It's it's Jews planning this. Jewish elites are trying to replace white people and bring in immigrants and people of color to replace white people. And the shooter at the Pittsburgh synagogue, that was literally why he shot up there was because there was a Jewish immigrant ministry that was based in that synagogue. Mm -hmm. I also understand that the Buffalo shooters manifesto included direct quotes from the manifesto of the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand. This was a mass shooting that occurred at two mosques in New Zealand in March of 2019. And the gunman, again, you know, he described himself as a white supremacist as part of the alt-right and explicitly and directly targeted Muslims as part of this fear that they would that they would be taking over kind of white culture. There was a recent poll from the Public Religion Research Institute that found that three in 10 Americans believe a version of this great replacement theory. They believe that immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. That is three in 10 Americans believe that. Of all Americans, including 65% of QAnon believers. So there's this connection yes. to broader conspiracy theories, as well as 50% of white evangelicals. And 60, six surveyed. in 10 of Republicans surveyed. These are big numbers. And I think, as you said, like these ideas have consequences. People died this weekend as a result of these ideas. And so mm -hmm. to think that racism is sort of fading in this country, that is a myth and that is not true. There seems to be this notion that people who hold 
truly racist ideas are few and far between. Mm -hmm. If you go back 50 or 100 years in this country, you would certainly find many more people who are racist. Mm -hmm. And so time will take care of the racism, like the previous generations that were resistant to the civil rights movement or to full legal equality for black Americans, like they will drift away. And what these mass shootings and these forums, it shows us that racism is a cancer that spreads from generation to generation. And there needs to be a direct antidote to it. Like, it's not like you can just passively hope (laughs) that it'll go away on its own. No, and I mean, I think that the internet has, like, created a whole new way for this to spread and breed among people, and a lot of these are young people. I mean, Mm -hmm. the shooter live-streamed this on Twitch. That's a video game platform that is mostly younger men on that platform. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, that detail in the reporting this weekend was one of the most disturbing just sick it's horrifying how your view of other humans is so degraded that you would think about killing them as like a form of entertainment or a badge of honor like and that you would know there would be other people who would want to watch that so just recognizing how racist attitudes are prevalent you know in these online forms among a younger generation underscores the importance of needing to learn about our country's history, the way that racism Mm -hmm. does exist in different forms and legal structures and attitudes over time. Like we didn't just get here out of nowhere in a vacuum. (laughs) And really thinking about the significance of education, both in the school system, but also in churches and families. How do we proactively counter the cancer of racism with the antidote of good historical education, but also good theological education. Right. I mean, and this to me is the tragic irony of the moment is that we have what is clearly a problem among, you know, in these forums, among young people, like there's these, this, this growing number of reported hate crimes. There's, there's all of this anti black and anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic language happening online. And then at the same time, there's conversations about banning books in schools that talk about the history of racism in this country. There's conversation, there's this pushback against any Mm -hmm. kind of conversation about how we got here and about racism. And and there's all this concern that like kids are going to feel guilty for being white if they're told about racism. And that's just of all the times that we need to make sure that kids are understanding the dangers of racism at a time when they can clearly be exposed to it online so easily. They need to be Mm -hmm. given the tools to combat that. And there's this active resistance to that and an active stripping away of those tools from our education systems. It seemed connected to us that the day before we heard the news of this mass shooting, we were talking with our guest today, Jamar Tisby, about news that had just broken out of Grove City College, a conservative Christian school in Pennsylvania. The board had voted to accept an ad hoc Mm -hmm. report on 
the school drifting from its mission. And that included kind of accepting or allowing for something called critical race theory, CRT, in its curriculum among its speakers. In particular, Jamar was called out for being a chapel speaker a couple of years ago. He was accused of promoting CRT and kind of Jamar's presence in chapel signaled this drift in the mm-hmm. college. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Grove City isn't isolated as a Christian institution or Christian leaders who at the very least have been wary, shall we say, <laughs> of conversation about systemic racial injustice and a way forward. And it's all come under this catch-all of CRT. Yeah. CRT is technically, it's a cross-genre academic body of research that really seeks to explain racial disparities after the civil rights era and the systemic ways that those exist within our society and our legal system. This is a very high-level academic field of study. That started like 40 years ago. Yes. It's it's not a new... No. Like, like oh, these Black Lives Matter right. Marxist protesters are now pushing their CRT. It actually refers to an academic body of research and thought that goes back to the 80s. Right. And it just kind of started cropping up. Like... Recently, like like if you looked back a few years ago and looked at how often CRT or critical race theory was Googled, it would be like minuscule. Um, it would barely register. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. last fall, it just like off the charts was being Googled all over the place. And in part, what you can really point to, to the impetus for that was really it became a conservative talking point. It became a, as you said, a catch-all for basically any conversations pushing back against racism and it it was strategic. It was a conservative effort to make a scapegoat, a, a boogeyman, to scare conservatives. And it really has worked. I mean, we saw in like school board protests, like CRT is just like mm-hmm. the scariest thing now for so many people. I've tried to th- I, I've tried to compassionately try to understand what I mean. I ha- I don't have any compassion for conservative activists who have latched onto this term and kind of strategically used it as a catch-all to whip up fear. Right. Like I and there's I like think an that actual that... strategy. Like this is not we're not making that up. Yes, Christopher Rufo, who's a conservative activist, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute tweeted last year, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. Mm -hmm. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. The entire range of cultural constructions is like, that could be a lot of things. Everything you dislike (laughs) is critical race theory. (laughs) Yeah, I was at the grocery store and somebody cut in line and that was a critical (gasps) race theory done to me. That was definitely a critical race theory. I've tried to understand, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention had a resolution specifically against CRT. I'm trying to think of the most gracious attempt to understand, like, why? What is it? What is what are people really concerned about? And I think for a lot of white Christians in particular, it's this idea that they want to be held accountable for their individual actions and only that. And as long as like I haven't done anything explicitly racist, 
how dare you condemn me because I'm white? You know, like, how dare you accuse me of things when in my conscience I am not harboring explicitly racist views, so I am not part of the problem. And I have black friends. <laughs> or right. whatever. Like right. <laughs> Black people go to my church. A few of them. Right. Like, is it that a lot of evangelical Christians just have a very individualistic understanding of sin and brokenness. And so unless I'm explicitly doing something wrong, I can't be held accountable. Yeah. I think that that's part of it. And that's part of, you know, in the Grove city college report, like that's part of what both that and the SBC sort of when they were pushing back and saying what was antithetical to the gospel about CRT, there was this idea that like individuals should be held accountable for their own actions and can be redeemed by Christ. And that critical race theory seems to put redemption out of the realm of possibility because of Mm -hmm. being born into Mm -hmm. whiteness, into, into a white culture that had, you know, that has committed these sins in generations past. It seems like a good time to turn to our guest today. Jamar Tisby is a public historian and speaker whose observations on whiteness and power in the evangelical church has made him a target, but also a great conversation partner. We'll hear from Jamar right after our break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you, and we reply. Caitlin, I am really digging the cover design for your upcoming book. Thank you. You were actually a really good sounding board for design ideas. Tell me more about the snake. It's my favorite part. The snake. So I don't really like snakes in real life. My mother absolutely hates snakes. So I felt a little bit like I was betraying her. (laughs) But there is a very subtle debossed snake cut out on the cover. Mm -hmm. It represents something that sneaks into an otherwise good place and tempts people in it with a promise of power. Yes, this is sounding familiar to me. Ring in some bells. In my book, Celebrities for Jesus, I argue that celebrity in the church has become snake-like, slippery and cunning. And we don't always see it for what it is until it's too late. We have talked on this season about Hillsong and other pastor scandals. In these contexts, celebrity was often embraced as a tool but was revealed later on to be an animal that has a big bite. And does your book tell us how to kill said animal, slay the snake? You'll just have to read it to find out. And I think you do have an advanced reader copy. But how can listeners get a copy of your upcoming book? Listeners can visit CaitlinBeatty.com to pre-order from a variety of booksellers. On my website, you can also sign up to get the first two chapters for free. Of course, you can also pre-order directly on Amazon, which is a fitting place for snakes to chill. Come to think of it. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. 
in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is Jamar Tisby. He's the author of the acclaimed book, The Color of Compromise which looks at the ways people of faith have often worked against racial justice. Roxy and I are so honored to have you join us, Jamar, for an episode of Saved by the City. We've been anticipating having you on for quite some time, so really glad that you were able to fit us in. And actually, you are coming to us like right after hearing this major news coming out of Grove City College And we've been following some of the news with this college and its statements against you for weeks. But tell us what just happened. Well, first of all, honored to be here. I feel like I've been called up to the big leagues. Hope I'm ready (laughs) for it. So thank you for having me on. And yes, it's been an ongoing saga. Grove City College is is a school in western Pennsylvania, has established its identity as conservative, I would say, uh, ultra-conservative, actually, in Mm -hmm. mid-April, they came out with what I'm calling an anti-CRT report. This Mm -hmm. was in response to a petition uh, from November 2021 that alleged, quote-unquote, mission drift at the Mm -hmm. school because of the infiltration of what they label as critical race theory, which, as we know, has become a catch-all term for virtually any conversation or topic around racial justice, racial progress. So what, mm-hmm. um, what happened was they, they, uh, a subcommittee of the board compiled this report. It was yet to be seen whether the rest of the board of trustees would officially adopt it, but mm-hmm. moments, literally moments before we hopped on this uh, call, the news came back that the board of trustees had met and they decided to officially adopt and accept this anti-CRT report, mm-hmm. which contains um, no small section about my presence there as a guest speaker back in October 2020, which the board labeled it was a mistake to mm-hmm. invite me and have me right. preach at chapel. So uh, I was just trying to see whether this would become the official board position or whether they would uh, revise the report at all. And they chose not to. So here we are. I'm kind of shocked that this is all coming out of you speaking in chapel once, you know, like, (laughs) like you showed up, you gave what was probably a wonderful message that resonated with a lot of students and faculty. Mm -hmm. And a year and a half later, they feel the need to kind of officially condemn. Why do you think this is happening? Like, what's really going on here in your right. estimation? What was really, I mean, it just struck me, like I spoke there October October 2020, really just weeks before the November 2020 presidential election. My chapel message is available online if you go to my newsletter, jamartisby.substack.com, and see for yourself. So I'm not hiding anything. I'm not trying to massage anything. But th- th- here's the thing. It was a sloppy report. They would not accept this level of scholarship or work from an undergraduate student. Right. And they're adopting yeah. it as the board mm. of trustees. They cited no quotes from that chapel message. Mm. They did not give any specifics about mm. what I said that was anti-gospel, anti-Bible. Here's what I think happened. Mm-hmm. Carl Truman has often been uh, a critic of mine. 
he wrote an article to the effect of, well, you can invite speakers like Jamar Tisby to lecture, talk in a class, but having him speak at chapel, mm -hmm. that gives a different imprimatur on his mm -hmm. message that's saying right. that the, the school agrees on some higher level with it, which is another form of just this theological paternalism, right? So, so mm, speakers yeah. like me, uh, those who speak on race, and especially black folks who come and, and talk about this, you can have us in a different setting where you're free to disagree, but mm. when it comes to chapel, when it comes to Bible interpretation, when it comes to theology, and then we talk about race in that context, all mm -hmm. of a sudden, no, 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 can't have that. That would be a sign of critical race theory and mission drift. Okay. <laughs> so much to unpack there. But <laughs> since you landed on critical race theory, let's just camp out there for a minute. What is CRT? And would it really have been so bad if you were doing a CRT <laughs> at Grove City College? Like, what is, is CRT really such a bad thing? I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we have to challenge the very premise of this. So, so what if it was critical race theory that I was talking mm -hmm. about? What would be so bad or evil about it? Let's not seed the ground that critical race theory is this evil, pernicious thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's simply an academic framework that arose in legal studies to mm -hmm. try to help explain after the civil rights movement, after mm -hmm. all of this so-called progress, why were black people and other people of color still experience such, in, such inequality, such injustice? Why didn't it go away, basically? I'm a historian. And so I don't need to actually study critical race theory to know that in mm -hmm. this nation, inequalities are embedded in policies and, and in laws and in institutions. And so if that's the critique, then you don't have to touch critical race theory at all. You just have mm -hmm. to go back and study history. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's what we're seeing here. But again, um, there is utility in creating a, a, a uh, phrase, um, a slogan mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is shorthand. Yeah for yeah. so much more. Yeah. This is part of the backlash. We'll get into this, I'm sure, but it's part of the backlash against the racial justice uprisings in 2020. How are right. we going to stop all these people from talking about racism and forcing us to change mascots and take monuments down and all of this, you know, supposedly terrible stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> How is this playing out in kind of conservative white Christian circles? And why is it being attached to a kind of theological orthodoxy? Like what's going on there? Yeah. What's that yeah. connection? Yeah. There's like a lot of like, this is CRT is anti-biblical. Right. Right. It's so confounding. I think it's because it actually frameworks such as critical race theory, but more broadly, any sort of initiatives to push for racial progress require significant change in these institutions. So I mentioned before this anti-CRT crusade is part of a backlash to what was happening in 2020. Think about what happened then. Mm -hmm. you, you had incredible yep. numbers of people, millions of people, by the numbers, the largest social movement in U.S. history was mm -hmm. in 2020. Yep. And it was about racism. The tip of the spear for that movement was anti-Black police brutality. So now you're getting into uh, confronting this sort of law and order politics, which since the late 60s and early 70s has been code for cracking down mm -hmm. on uh, Black and Brown and poor people, particularly mm -hmm. in cities. Um, mm -hmm. You also get a bunch of Christians like myself, like yourselves, talking about racial justice. So now it's in the camp, mm -hmm. so to speak. 
And mm-hmm. we can't have that because it's disrupting our political allegiances, right? So, mm-hmm. so if you really want to make progress on, on racial justice from a systemic and policy standpoint, that means there's some pegs of the Republican platform that can't stand. Um, not to say that any party's saintly, you know, above reproach or anything like that, but it is to say that it does challenge the power, the political power dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, there are reactionary forces, not just within the organizations like Grove City College, but um, who are sort of constituents. They could be donors, alumni, leaders uh, in various sectors, and they start to put pressure on mm-hmm. these institutions to maintain this so-called conservative line. But mm-hmm. um, as was mentioned earlier, this this isn't about theological conservatism. This is about political conservatism. So uh, they want to preserve an image of being politically conservative, which has a long history of being attached to um, right-leaning and, and Republican uh, kind of politics. It strikes me that you and other historians like Anthea Butler and Kristen Dumay, Beth Allison Barr have kind of become scapegoats in a way for doing historical analysis that just exposes how deep roots of white supremacy as well as kind of patriarchal norms go in the evangelical movement in the U.S. Why do you think you've become targets? Because I was in and among these folks. So mm. there's a certain sense in which um, I, I was a poster child of the evangelical right. racial reconciliation movement, mm-hmm. uh, which is still in play in ev- any church and every sermon that says all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Um, Jesus mm-hmm. loves everybody. We welcome everybody, but then doesn't do a thing to actually enact justice mm-hmm. and equity. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's what MLK called pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities. Uh, This is how you can get a dramatic increase in multiracial, multiethnic churches uh, beginning in the early 2000s. Um, But then what 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 that was based on was unity. It was getting Mm -hmm. people of different hues in the pews, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was saying, can Mm -hmm. we all get in the same building at the same time and 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 sing praise songs to Jesus, right? It was the pulpit swaps, reconciliation Sundays, right? All of that's good. It's not bad in and of itself. But but, but the the problem was unity was the goal. And when unity is the goal, you're going to downplay differences because you're Mm -hmm. trying to keep everybody together. Mm -hmm. What should have been the case is that justice is the goal. And you get Mm -hmm. unity as a byproduct of justice because you get unified behind a mission. You get unified behind a goal, but that goal was never that this goal of racial equity and justice was almost never the explicit priority of many white evangelical churches, even those that made gestures at diversity. Mm -hmm. So then I'm in that mix, right? Um, Why is a very important question. Like why, (laughs) knowing all of this, we know, right? Well, um, number one, Churches, Christian institutions, colleges, seminaries, they're making overt efforts to recruit uh, black people and other people of color. They're Mm. offering scholarships. They're saying, hey, we want you here. We welcome you. Um, So, you know, there's a there's a front facing aspect of this that that belies the the true nature and reality of what it's like once you're in. 
Right. Um, and they're not sort of like foaming at the mouth racist most of, most of the time. They, right. they mean well. They're sincere about it. They just have no idea <laughs> what it really entails. Um, and then secondly, there's just resources. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that there really wasn't such a thing as black evangelicals as, as we would conceive of them now until around the 1950s. And that was when many white evangelical institutions, um, not really out of a sense of um, true sort of racial egalitarianism, almost a, it was most, almost a paternalistic sense of let's let some black and brown folks in because we've got what they need and it would mm, be nice right. you know, to have them. Uh, so that's been the attitude. But what they did have was resources. Understand like a lot of black pastors and, and uh, church leaders bivocational, tri-vocational, but you got, you know, white churches with uh, full-time staff, multiple people paid mm-hmm. on staff, right? You've mm-hmm. got huge churches, you've got money, you've got uh, youth groups, you've got college campus ministries, it had stuff. And then as a black man, I'm in those circles because as long as I sort of towed the line, there was opportunity for me to be in mm-hmm. leadership, to be on the platform, to be behind the pulpit, to speak at the conferences, to whatever, right. in a way that wasn't open to women, particularly black women. Right. So um, all of those things were alluring and enticing. And there was the aspect of hope. We actually believed mm. we could do this. We believed mm-hmm. folks were sincere. We could pull this off. Um, but what happened was we started to get to issues where you simply had to take a side. Mm-hmm. And what we began to see was people aligning on the side of the status quo, aligning yeah. on the side of racial compromise and complicity. And what's happening right now in the church is a sifting and a sorting. Now that it's almost like it's almost like we were in a dim room, you know, like a like mm. a like a trendy club in New York or, or like like Abercrombie <laughs> and Fitch used to be. And then somebody flipped on the lights and you can see what's actually really there. And you're like, oh, I mean, I, I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere right. else. I thought it was something different, but I need to be somewhere else. Is there a moment that you think of when the lights came on for you? I know That's you've told question. I know you've told lots of stories on past the mic and in other contexts, but yeah, what was the moment when the light came on for you? The 2016 election, particularly the election night. Um, I had recently relocated from Jackson, Mississippi, where I went to seminary at uh, check all the boxes, conservative Christian school, Reformed Theological Seminary, and um, had relocated back to the Delta. And I remember sitting uh, on my couch watching the election returns come in. I had that on the TV and I had my iPad open to follow Twitter and the conversation and the the sort of um, inexorable... Uh, it felt like a descent to the results and um, this feeling, it was late at night already. So it was like literally physically dark and it just felt like this darkness there. And the next day I recorded a podcast where our, our podcast producer, Bo interviewed me. And the line that set everybody off was, I said, I did not feel comfortable worshiping at my white evangelical church that Sunday. Mm-hmm. No, I said, I, did not feel safe worshiping at my white evangelical church, by which I meant mm-hmm. when we saw these exit poll numbers and the 81% of white evangelicals yeah. who voted voting for Trump, I said, these folks have held my child in 
their arms. We have sang together, prayed together, worshiped together, uh, done community together, and they still don't know mm-hmm. what this means for me. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're celebrating it. Mm-hmm. And so how, I said, how can I go to a church where the, the connection is so superficial, mm-hmm. where the distance between our lived realities is so profound? Uh, a sort of discernment blogger guy, he styles himself an apologist uh, named James White. He got a hold of that podcast, did an hour-long takedown on his YouTube channel, uh, basically saying that I was the racist because I didn't like white evangelicals. Um, and and his sort of minions and trolls got a hold of that. And for three weeks right. straight, uh, they were just attacking me with the horrible names, all the, the most atrocious kind of behavior coming out of professed Christians, you know? And I remember for, for that period of a few weeks, I couldn't log on without my eye starting to twitch from the stress of it all. Mm-hmm. And that for me personally was okay, something terribly wrong and deeply rooted is happening here. And there just may not be a place for me in this branch of Mm -hmm. the church. Just one last question for you. Um, Do you think that the institution of evangelicalism is worth saving or is it just too mired in white supremacy? And for those of us who are trying to untangle the history of white supremacy from the religion that we grew up with, like, Point us in a direction. What are your words of wisdom? I'll say this. We need new wineskins for new wine. Mm -hmm. So the issue with a lot of these institutions, whether colleges and universities, campus ministries, nonprofits, you name it, the issue is many of them were founded without any sort of explicit or intentional uh, understanding or, or, or initiatives toward racial, racial justice racial diversity and equity. Mm-hmm. And what's happening now is they're trying to sort of sprinkle that on top and add it in. Mm. And it, it, in most cases, unfortunately, it won't work because of the, the amount of uh, willpower, um, institutional, political courage, the redistribution of institutional resources that it requires, so few will actually take that up. And, and the ones who do are going to get fired or kicked out or some some other way sort of marginalized, right? So it's very unlikely that we'll see a lot of institutions change. And so what we need are new institutions. Mm-hmm. And so what I would encourage is, is a prophetic imagination among mm-hmm. Christians of all races and ethnicities to imagine new institutions, new organizations, new uh, nonprofits, uh, congregations, uh, teaching mm-hmm. ministries that have from the very beginning the idea of racial justice embedded in the DNA of the organization. And those are the ones that we can build over time and, and that it can be truly multiracial and inclusive. I also think that we are in a time of moral clarity. Mm-hmm. The issues at hand are ones that you have to take a side on. Do masks work to prevent the spread of a deadly vaccine? Are we going to accept a vaccine or these sort of alternative measures that other people propose? Was the 2020 election legitimate or was it mm-hmm. stolen? Um, is anti-Black police brutality a systemic and institutional problem or do we need the back the blue? Um, 
all of these kind of things mm-hmm. are are you can't really sit in the middle for long. Hmm. You sort of have to declare yourself. And I think what's happening now is we have more and more churches, more and more leaders declaring themselves, and there's a sifting going on. Yeah. And I would just encourage folks who are find yourself in a, in an, in an environment in a context that that wasn't what you thought it was or or or, or what you hoped it would be. There's going to likely be a wilderness wandering. Hmm. I'm in that wilderness now in the sense of I don't know I don't have like a denominational home or something at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing about the wilderness: number one, you're not alone. You are uh, encamped with other people who are also on the journey. And number two, that's where you find Jesus. You find Jesus in the wilderness um, when. We pursue this path of justice. The promise that Jesus gives us is Emmanuel, God with us. Hmm. The promise is the presence of Jesus. But I'll tell you this, what I've learned in a decade of publicly preaching, teaching, writing about racial justice is all of those promises of Jesus remain abstract, intellectual, theoretical until you're on the path of justice. Mm-hmm. And that path always comes with persecution. Mm-hmm. But Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And I think the blessing that Jesus is talking about is the blessing of his presence. You encounter Jesus on the road to justice. And for that, it's worth the price. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamar. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think it was perfect timing. I appreciate your thoughtfulness and questions. And thank you for having me on the show. Say by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.